you have your Bible, turn to the book of Philemon. The little book of Philemon. It's one chapter long. It's in the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. If you're still in Matthew, you're not going far enough. Look up the little book of Philemon. We're studying a, 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 sub, a subject, the adventure of prayer, the adventure of prayer. I don't know if your prayer life is adventurous. My life is extremely adventurous when I get into the area of prayer. And today we're talking about praying for others. It's humbling. When you hear somebody praying for you, it's humbling. I know my father is a pastor. I would come out some nights and I would hear my father and he was praying. Uh, my, my mother and my father, as you walked by their room at, at night, you could hear them praying with each other. And occasionally I would hear my name being mentioned. And sometimes it wasn't even because I'd been bad. So it, that was a nice thing when they were praying for me. But it was humbling. When I was uh, going to Sunday school as a little, little boy at four years of age, my Sunday school teacher was Mrs. Turner. Mrs. Turner, her husband was later my Sunday school teacher. She was probably the best teacher I had. He may have been the worst teacher I had, not because he, he just wasn't a great teacher in the sense that he could take the word and really expound it, but he was also the best Sunday school teacher I had because he taught me how to fish and he, he, he took us on overnights and, and he just he poured his life into us. He was a steel worker at Armco Steel and his wife, Mrs. Turner, just loved the little kids and she was in the nursery for years and years. At my ordination, when I was 23 years old, I was ordained into the ministry. And she came to my ordination service. And when she came to the ordination service, she said, you know, I, got, I, I know, I, I knew at the time that you were four years old that God had called you to be a pastor. This woman felt like I was going to be a pastor. And then she said something that absolutely humbled me beyond my, my comprehension. She said, George, she called me Georgie, don't you do that. But she called me Georgie. She said, George, I've been praying for you every week for 19 years that you would follow God's call into the ministry. That's humbling. That's humbling when you have someone who has that capacity for prayer. I know 17 people who went through Mrs. Turner's class that are either missionaries or pastors today. And I think... The way she prayed may have had something to do with that. Ever have anybody pray for you like that? Have you ever prayed for someone like that? There's a, there's a great passage. Paul prayed like that. In, in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, look at what it says. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that, th is that they might be saved. He goes on in, in, in other places in Romans to talk about that if he could be accursed, if he could be cut off from heaven, if he could go to hell on their behalf, he would do so. That's someone who's passionate about their prayer. That's someone who's in the midst of, of an adventure in prayer and has a whole new capacity for prayer that we can't even fathom. There are many ways to pray for people. I, I, I like to say as a pastor, I've prayed for livers and hearts and lungs and brains and bones and broken bones and broken hearts and broken marriages and broken families and broken relationships. I, I prayed for a lot of things, and I should, and you should. And I love it when you list off on the card that, that Joel was talking about earlier, Pastor Joel, when you list off those things that you, you want us to pray for. But my, my heart's desire and my question to us today is, if we pray for all of those things, but they have a broken soul, if they've never come to Jesus Christ, are we praying for our children and our grandchildren and our, our grandchildren's spouses-to-be that they will come to know Jesus Christ? 
Do we pray for someone to come to faith? Do we pray for someone who's come to faith to grow in their faith? I think so many times we miss that part of prayer. So many times we miss that part of the adventure of prayer. And I want to examine that just a little bit today as we look at the book of Philemon. Uh, the, the first thing that we find in this, I think, is that we are to pray for others to trust in Christ. That's supposed to be a part of our prayer regimen, part, part of what we do on a, on a daily basis. Uh, I, I know a lot of you, since the first year, have been losing weight, and, and I had somebody come up to me uh, this week and say, Pastor, you've lost too much weight. I'm halfway to my goal, guys. Don't, don't stop me now. I'm, I'm getting there. And I have this regimen I'm trying to, to exercise every three or four weeks. I exercise for an hour. That, I'm really trying to get into... Some of you are just now getting that. You'll explain it to those others later, okay? No, I, I try to, and I don't get into that habit. I'm, I'm not into the, the, the way that I should. It seems like there's just not enough hours in the day. And I've decided I'm not going to give up my prayer time so I can exercise. Because I'm going to do the thing that's most important first, and that's praying. But pray for others to trust in Christ. Look at the book of Philemon, just two verses, verses 4 and 5. It says this, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Paul is writing, Paul is in prison in Rome. Uh, he's writing to Philemon, who's in Colossae, we believe, we're pretty sure of that. Uh, and he's, he, he's knowing this young man and what's happened in his life. And, he, and look what he says again, I, I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I want to stop there for just a minute. Do you know someone who needs faith? That's the first question we need to ask ourselves. Do you know someone, is there anyone in your life who needs a faith in Jesus Christ? Is there anyone that you come in contact with on a day-to-day -day basis who needs to know Jesus Christ? And if the answer is no, then you better wake up again because there's no way that you rub elbows and rub shoulders with people on a day-to-day -day basis that don't need Jesus Christ. I, you know, I walk the dogs through the neighborhood, and, and I don't know who lives in a lot of the homes, but from time to time I find myself praying for whoever lives in that home that if they don't know Jesus Christ, that they will come to know him. And then I realize that that's kind of an empty prayer. So my next prayer is that I will get to know that person so that I can tell them that Jesus Christ is the answer to whatever problems are in their life. That he will open the door so that will happen. Do you know someone who needs faith? Paul was thrilled when he heard Philemon had trusted in Jesus Christ. I think he heard it probably from Epaphras. Uh, he's not necessarily mentioned in, in that way. But we know from other sources that Epaphras was, was bringing some information back to Paul, and that's probably where Paul heard it. But it doesn't matter. He knew that, that, Phi, that Philemon had come to Christ and that Christ had transformed his life, had changed him. And I guess the, the first question is, faith changed us. How has faith changed us? How do we live differently because of our faith in Jesus Christ? Does it make any difference at all? I was having a discussion uh, just a week ago with someone who was talking about the number of Christians who are practicing atheists. They named the name of Jesus Christ, but if you looked at their life and you examined their life, you could not see a single place anywhere in their life where they're different because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They don't pray on a regular basis. They attend sporadically at church. They don't read the Bible. They're, they're not particularly displaying the fruit of the Spirit. And he, and he called them practicing atheists. And I thought, wow, that's pretty tough terminology, except it's right. If Jesus Christ has not transformed us from the inside out, 
It, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It does not mean we never make a mistake. It never it does not mean that we do not stumble. But how are we different because of our faith? Daniel Martinez believed in something that transformed him. Daniel Martinez believed that he could do P90X and that workout would change his life. And a year ago, he, he went on YouTube and he showed the results of being 90 days in this workout thing. And it's, if it really happened in 90 days, I want whatever he got because that's amazing what happened to his life. I mean, he lost a tremendous amount of weight and got in great shape. He's had over a million hits. And, and I, I was just curious because now he started his own exercise company because he believed that that would change him. It's exercise. It's getting in shape. We have the truth that will change you eternally. It's not about the outside. It's not about the way we look. It's not about the extra pounds we put on. It's about that soul decay that's in our heart, in our life. And we have the answer to that. If that has changed something in us, we should want to, to tell somebody else about it. Faith in Christ changes us from the inside. And if we believe faith in Jesus changes people, why don't we pray for those who need him? If we really believe that it would change them, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to say that, that, you know, I had somebody, I was walking the dog one day in our neighborhood, there was no one who's here this morning, but I was walking the, the dog through the neighborhood and my dog stepped on somebody else's grass and they used an expletive and they told me to get the dog off of their grass. I prayed for them. There's some psalms called imprecatory psalms. Lord, call down judgment on this man. He doesn't like my dog. I, I mean, my first reaction is to get mad. My, fr- my second reaction was to get madder. My third reaction is to, to turn around and give him a piece of my mind, but I realized I didn't really have any extra to give him of my mind. So I found myself finally by the end of the walk praying, Lord, how could I... Show Christ's love to this man to take the anger and the frustration and the bitterness and the rancor out of his life. Do you know someone who needs faith? There's a story in the New Testament. There was a demon-possessed boy. And and this young man is brought to Jesus. And he's first brought to the disciples, and the disciples struggle, and 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 they're not able to release this young man from the captivity, from that that horrible control that the demon had over him. And he's brought to Jesus in Mark 9. He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us, help us. That's what the dad says to Jesus. And what does Jesus reply? If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes. And look at what it says in Mark 9, 24. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. And then look at the next part. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's his cry to God. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. His prayer was, help me overcome my unbelief. Folks, we don't understand that. We don't really believe that God works through prayers. David Jeremiah wrote a little book on prayer uh, called The Prayer Matrix. And this is what he says. I scoured the New Testament some time ago looking for things God does in ministry that are not prompted by prayer. Guess how many I found? None. Everything God does in the work of the ministry, he does through prayer. And then he lists some. Prayer is the way we defeat Satan. Prayer is the way we help to save the lost. And he gives these references, Luke 18, 13. Prayer is the way we obtain or acquire wisdom. 
James 1.5. Prayer is the way someone who has drifted from God comes back. A backslider gets restored. James 5.16-20. Prayer is how those believers get strengthened. Uh, Jude 1.20, Matthew 26.41. Prayer is the way we get laborers out to the mission field. Remember what Jesus said, the fields are white. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he'll send missionaries out there. Prayer is how we cure the sick or how God cures the sick. James chapter 5, 13 through 15. And prayer is how God accomplishes the impossible. Mark eleven twenty three and 24. Everything we do, he says, that's worth doing. Everything God wants to do in the church. Everything God wants to do in your life. All of this has been subjugated to one thing. Prayer. Do you know someone who needs faith? The second question is, is like it. Do you know someone who needs love? Because when Paul is talking about Philemon and, and writing to Philemon... He says, I've heard of your faith, but I've, I've also seen how your faith has been expressed in your love. And you say, well, Paul zeroes in on love here. Why does he do that? If, if this is about someone coming to trust the Lord, where, where does love fit in that? Galatians 5, 6 says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And when we begin to trust the Lord, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it begins to ooze out of us in ways that we can't even imagine sometimes, and His love begins to to grow. And when we begin to trust the Lord with the people and the possessions, the plans that, that mean the most to us, all of a sudden they get pushed to the side and God's love becomes preeminent. And God's love again begins to, to well up in us. I think we have the wrong idea of why we pray. When, when it comes to this whole topic of faith and love, I think we have the wrong idea because we are convinced that God reluctantly is going to answer our prayer eventually. Haven't you felt that way? Be honest. Haven't you felt that way sometimes? Absolutely. Come on. Let's get a little honesty here. Haven't you prayed and prayed and you felt like God? Yeah. If I could just convince God this is the right thing to do. It's kind of like our kids and grandkids when Christmas comes and they're making out their Christmas wish list. If they can convince Pawpaw that this is a good enough deal, Pawpaw's going to buy it for them. And so now when we get on the phone, the the grandkids are saying, Pawpaw, you ought to see this video game. Ooh, it would teach me to be a better student. Yeah, right. What they don't understand is Pawpaw loves them. Papa wants the very best for them. Papa wants to get them anything that will be of help to them. Papa already has some ideas that, that maybe it's a toy or a gift or a game or something that they need that they don't even understand that they need. And Papa, who is a few years older than the, the grandkids, wants to get them what they need. And our Heavenly Father sees us and knows what we really need. And what we need is love. Prayer is not breaking down God's reluctance to do something for us. God is not dragging his feet. God's plan is better than our plan. God's plan is bigger than our plan. God's power is infinite. God's ability is there. God's willingness is all in on this. He wants to do it. James 1.5 says he gives to all liberally. Ephesians 3.20 says he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or we can even think. 
We're quick to pray, Lord, heal them. And we should be. And, and, I've, and I've done it this morning already many times because of the, the people who are ill today. We should be quick to do that. But sometimes we miss the greater need in their life, and that's the love of Jesus Christ to become so overwhelming to them. What if what they need is not healing but love? What if love is more important? I think there's a great illustration in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him, it says, and, and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Wait a second, he has leprosy. Is, is he dirty or is he leprous? Well, in the Old Testament and even in New Testament times, we're told in Deuteronomy that if someone had leprosy, they went to the priest, and if they were determined to have leprosy, because it was contagious, it was, it was an issue. There were several illnesses, but, but they were very contagious. They could not have them in the camp, and so they would have to wear rags. They would have to, if they saw somebody a certain distance away, they would have to say, unclean, unclean. They couldn't go back to their home. They couldn't lie with their wife. They, they, they couldn't have any kind of a marriage relationship. They couldn't hold their children. They couldn't hold a job. They, they could not be a part of the general population. And we're not talking about a day or a week or a month. It, unless it cleared up, it was for the rest of their life. And this man wants to go back home. This man wants to, to hug his wife one more time. This man wants to hold his children and maybe his grandchildren. This, this man comes to Jesus. He has no other options. There is no hospital. There is no wonder drug. It's just Jesus. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus does the most amazing thing. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. From the minute the priest said, you have leprosy, no one has touched him. From the minute someone found out that he had leprosy, his wife probably stood back and said, you need to go get checked out by the priest. From the minute that happened, he couldn't hold his child. From the minute that happened, he couldn't shake hands with his friends. From the minute that happened, he couldn't have a life. And all of a sudden, someone touches him before he heals him. What that man needed more than healing was he needed a touch of God. What he needed more than healing was love. And Jesus knew what he needed more than the leprosy to go away. And I think if you'd been there that morning when Jesus touched that man, I think you would have gone, oh my goodness. And then look what it says. I'm willing, he said. He doesn't say be healed. He could have. Jesus uses his terminology and says, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Listen, church family, let me tell you, I think we think the greatest need that we have in this life today is to clear the hospitals of all the sick. The greatest need that we have in our society is for us to cure cancer. The greatest need that we have in our society is for people to get back to work. The greatest need that we have in our society is for our economy to come back around. The greatest need, in, you fill in the blank, and the greatest need that we need in our society is love. It's love. For God to reach into our hearts when we feel so dirty, so unclean, and say, you're clean. Because he took it all on the cross. If we get no further in this message, I want us to understand that. 
when our grandson, one of our grandsons, Nico, when he was just a little boy, Happy Feet, the movie came out. You remember the, the movie Happy Feet? The penguins and 3D and animation and all that good stuff. And there was a song, I, I'm sure it was from really godly background, and it was sung by Queen called Somebody to Love. Does anybody tell me somebody to love? And when Nico heard that song, a switch went off in his mind and in his body. And you could just come in and you could just sing. Bum, ba, dum, ba, dum, ba. You didn't even say the words. Did anybody tell me? Can anybody? And he would just go nuts and run through the house. And then the song would play, and he would dance, and he would laugh, and he would just, and as soon as it was done, he would say, do it again. And when we went to see him in Austin, we walked through the door, and we'd heard about it, and we'd seen a video of it. And I said, Nico, what's your favorite song? And he said, somebody to love. How come God's word doesn't set off that same trigger in our mind? To say, I need to tell somebody that there's somebody to love. And that same exuberance and that same joy and that same abandonment to run through our neighborhoods and through our town and through our nation and around the world to tell them that there is someone who wants to touch them because there's somebody to love. Pray for others to trust in Christ. Then look at the last part. Pray for others to mature in Christ. Pray for others to mature in Christ. We're going to pick it up in Philemon Verse 6, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Wouldn't you love for someone to write a letter to you and say, your, your love is refreshing. Your love is so effervescent. Your love is so amazing that it just lifts me up. Look at verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal, I beg, I implore to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and me. Play on words. Paul is a great, he loves puns. The word, uh, the name Onesimus means useful. And he was a slave. He was Philemon's slave. And, and when you hear slave, don't think the same thing that we thought of in our American history with slaves. In the Jewish culture, there were slaves who would come and for six or seven years they would say, I will work for you for this amount and I will be your slave for the next six or seven years. Every seven years, the law of the Sabbath, they were to be released from that slavery. And so much of it was voluntary. There was also some other slavery where people were enslaved, but it was still not the kind of slavery that we had as, as the dark part of American history. But he was this slave, and it appears that he either stole some money from Philemon, or at least, at the very least, left without telling him and did not fulfill his contract. Philemon had every right to be upset with Onesimus. Onesimus did something that was wrong. Now pick it up in verse 12. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. 
I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Why? Because while he was with Paul, he accepted Jesus Christ as a Savior. Now he wants to do the right thing. Look at, look at uh, again, verse 6. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I'm going to stop there. We could go to the end of the chapter, but, but just look at what we have here. We are to pray for others to mature, not only to come to Christ in faith, but also to grow up in their faith. And I want you to ask yourself three questions one more time, and then we'll be done. Number one, am I actively sharing my faith? Why does Paul go here? Why does he specifically say, you pray that Philemon will demonstrate this in his life? Am I actively sharing my faith? We've talked about living in grace. You see it's up here on this soffit. Then walking by faith, and as you leave, sharing Christ's love. Why, is, why are we focusing on that this year? Because if we have Jesus Christ in our life, we should share Christ's love with others. And he says, Philemon, I, I've seen what God has done, and I see how he's changed you, and I see how you love other people. Now I want you to, to actively share that love. Actively share your faith. Talking about something that's meaningful is not really that hard for us, is it? If you have a new child, guess what happens when you come to church? You show those pictures, or you show that baby, and you're excited about it. If someone gets engaged, they come walking in, and all of a sudden their hand's going like this. They're going to show that ring off, and I love it. If you have a new grandchild, man, I get, to, I get those emails, and I, I love that. I love to hear about your, your, your favorite new thing in your life. Uh, come on, it doesn't even have to be that big. If you get a new car after church, everybody will be circled around going, oh, wow, need to hit them up for a loan. We do that, don't we? I was riding my bicycle. I was going up Shasta View toward, uh, toward uh, Simpson College, and I saw somebody coming the other direction, coming down the hill. And first of all, it made me mad that they went flying down by me a whole lot faster than I was going up towards Simpson. But they, I saw them in, in the, just in the corner of my eye come across Shasta View and come up behind me, and he's pedaling up by me. And I was struggling just to keep up. And he caught me, and he came upside, and he said, what kind of bike do you have? Do you have a new bike? And I said, no, it's, it, I've had it here for a while, and this is the kind it is. And he says, oh, he says, I just got a brand new Trek. I thought maybe you had a Trek. I want, and I'm thinking, no, that's a lot more expensive than what I can spend on a bike. But, but that's okay. And I'm, and I'm riding by him, and he's telling me about all the bells and whistles. Well, it's got this kind of wheels, and it's got this kind of this, and it's got this kind of that. And we're pedaling up the hill, and the next thing I know, he's not there anymore. He hit the gravel and almost wrecked his brand new trek. And I felt really bad. No. He wanted me to see that he had something new. He wanted to actively share his love for bicycling. And I stopped and I said, you okay? He said, yeah, 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 I wasn't paying attention. I just got so wrapped up in who I am and what I've got. He said that. And I said, wow, that's cool. He says, 
oh, it's late. I'm a half hour late. My wife's going to kill me. And he went the other way. I wish I was that excited about Jesus Christ. I wish we were that excited about Jesus Christ. Because time after time in the New Testament, when someone comes to Christ, the first thing they do is go tell the people around them. In John chapter 4, verse 29, the woman at the well says, uh, she goes to the town. She's come at noon, so nobody will know where she is because she's embarrassed. And all of a sudden, she goes from a wallflower, from someone who's trying to hide, to the most prominent person that is in the whole town. And she says, come see this man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? In John chapter 1, verse 41, look what it says. The first thing Andrew did, Jesus comes to Andrew and he says, Hey, listen, you want to you be a part of something amazing? You want to come follow me? The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ, the promised one of the Old Testament. We should pray for new believers to have the excitement and the courage to tell others. But the truth is, we won't pray for them unless we have that excitement first in our life. Am I actively sharing my faith. Number two, am I demonstrating grace? Paul wrote this letter. He said, I could have forced you to do the right thing. You know, as, as your spiritual mentor, as, as, as your leader, as this person who has this pre, uh, preeminent place in the church, Paul could have said, listen, Philemon, Onesimus, what he did was wrong, but forgive him. But he doesn't. He appeals to his grace. Yeah, maybe he stole from you. Maybe he did something horrible. But even though he doesn't deserve it, even though he didn't earn it, even though it's something that you don't have to do, why don't you show him grace? R.A. Torrey says, prayer is having a private audience with God coming into his presence. I love that definition. Prayer is having a private audience with God, coming into the presence of God. That's what Hebrews says, to come boldly into the throne of grace and find help in need and, and mercy in time of trouble. And we come there. Let me explain something. If you take someone who has wronged you, if you take someone that, that has done you wrong into the throne of grace, if you bring them into the presence of Christ, you cannot feel the same way about them. I'll go a step further. There are some of us that were not necessarily thrilled with everything that happened in the last election. God is still in control. God allowed us to have the president that we have. And the Bible says to pray for those who are in leadership over us. It doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything that's happening in our government, everything that's happened in everything that we say, but we pray for them. In fact, we ought to pray that God will bless them. Isn't that what the Bible says? Luke 6, 28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And, and you say, well, you know, I, I just can't do that, Pastor. Well, try bringing them into the presence of God. And demonstrate grace. They may be terribly flawed. The truth is, if we were in that office, we don't know how we would handle everything. So before we jump to a conclusion, let's give grace a chance. What would happen if all of a sudden we had a revival break out in Washington, D.C.? 
What would happen if, if we had a revival breakout in Sacramento? What would happen if we had a revival breakout among our elected officials? What would happen if all of a sudden some of the leadership in this country that thinks that we're at a certain place, what would happen if we prayed for them so much that God began to change their lives? Wouldn't that be the greatest miracle of all? Jesus died for them. Jesus died for you. And all that Paul is saying is to Philemon is, can't you pray for this brother? 2 Peter 3.18 says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I am convinced that we love grace when it's applied to us, and I'm also convinced that we're pretty stingy when we have to apply it to other people. Here's the last one. Am I quick to display forgiveness? Paul asked Philemon to to release him from the debt. He says, if he owes you anything, just put it on my account. Again, Paul's in prison. Does he have a lot of money? No, he doesn't. What's he saying? And again, Philemon, if he has a slave, if he has a servant of of this order, Philemon probably has a lot of money, a lot more money than Paul does. But what happens? What does he say? Just release the debt. Let me pay it. I think that's the best definition of forgiveness I have ever seen. If If someone has done something, and again, we're not saying that what they're doing is right. We're not forgiving, uh, just forgetting what they've done. We're not saying that we get to the point where, where we should be a doormat for them. But at some point, if they have a debt that they owe us, we should forgive them that debt. If we want to pray for others to forgive, it begins with us. You have someone... Maybe that was an alcoholic. Maybe you were abused as a child. Maybe you have some other situation in your life and you have struggled to forgive them. The truth is you're probably the one who's still the prisoner. You're still the one who's holding something against them and, it, and it's absolutely devastating your life. Ask God to enable us to forgive. We have, again, example after example in the, in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, look at what it says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Who said that? Joseph. Who did he say it to? His brothers. The same brothers who one day when he's out there because they considered him arrogant, because he told them the dream, because he told them what was going on in his life, because he revealed what God's plan was going to be, maybe unwisely. But he revealed it to them, and they hated him, and he came to them, and they first were going to kill him, and then they sold him into slavery. And years later, not months later, years later, this happens when he's 16, 17 years old, and he's at least 30 at this time. And actually, when this is written, they have lived with him for a while. Joseph's father, Jacob, dies, and and they come and say, Dad said the last thing before he died is don't kill us. That's the George Knight condensed version. But it's really what he said. They said, don't kill us. And Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Because Joseph was put in a place where he saved not only Egypt from destruction with a famine, but also all of his family. Am I quick to display forgiveness? Let me give you two illustrations, then we'll go home. Here's the first one. As a young Christian, a young, a young pastor, I was working part-time at, at a bank. And there was a bank teller there 
And I began to notice that there were bruises on her arms. And I began to notice that there were bruises along her, the sides of her face. And I began to realize that something was going on. And one day I, I, I was sitting there at lunch and I was praying before my meal. And she, I realized that she had walked in while I was praying. And she said, do you believe in prayer? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, would you pray for me? My husband's beating me. I said, yes, I will. We, we developed a friendship, and, and this teller was struggling in her life. And I met with her a, a time or two after work for just a while with, with others there, never just the two of us alone, but I met with her and I talked with her a bit. And, and I began to pray for her, and I began to pray for her husband. But I came to work one day, and when I got to, I was one of the first ones there. When I got there, I realized that someone was in the basement. And when I went down to the basement, I realized that she had camped out there overnight. And she said the manager of the bank allowed her to sleep there because... Her husband was beating her again. And man, she just looked ghastly. She couldn't even work as a teller for several days because he'd beaten her so badly. And she said, what should I do? And in my infinite wisdom, I said, leave him. You're too good for this. No one should be abused like this. Leave him. She said, but I thought you were praying. I said, I am praying, but I don't want you to be beaten like this. Just leave him. My brother Jim had worked at the bank before I uh, did. Jim is, is 13 months older than I am. He's also a pastor. And Jim heard of my conversation, and he called the woman on the phone, and they were talking on the phone at length. And then he arranged to go and meet with the husband and the wife and come into the family. He arranged for them to go to a counselor, a Christian counselor, and he began to pray for them. She did not leave him. The man got help. The last time I heard was not that many years ago, and she was doing really, really well. They had been married for over 30 years, and the, the marriage had been healed. She came to know Jesus Christ. He came to know Jesus Christ. His life was transformed because someone prayed with her. I gave them the wrong advice. I did the wrong thing. I did not believe that prayer could change the situation. Now, sometimes I tell stories where I look good, but this is the honest story of sometimes pastors get it wrong just like everybody else. But let me tell you one other story, and we'll go. It's also a true story. A man by the name of Aram. Aram uh, was a little boy, and he would go week after week, and he would, uh, he would mow his neighbor's lawn. And afterwards, and, and he writes it this way, she would say, you must be hungry after uh, shoveling or mowing or raking or whatever it was so hard. This particular time he was shoveling snow. Let me give you a piece of apple pie. Do you like apple pie? You stay right there and let me get you some. She was almost 80. She was ancient. She was too old to be alive. He wrote that, not me. I knew it would take her at least 10 minutes to, to get into the kitchen, never mind dishing out the pie. I did not have time. Just pay me my money. How long do I have to sit here? And she brought me this pie. It was a New England light, golden brown crust, piping, piping hot apples, cold milk in a tall glass, and I devoured it. She barely sat down at the head of the table to enjoy her slice when she noticed that my plate was bare. Let me go get you another piece. There was no declining the offer. Another ten minutes. She was in the kitchen forever. The pie was good. The milk was cold. I made quick work. She paid me. I left. But time after time, she talked and she talked. It was the dread of our neighborhood. If you work for Mrs. Back, we all have a Mrs. Back in our lives even at that young age, I began to reflect, how could someone be so oblivious to the clues before her? How could she not notice I wanted out of there? 
10 years later, on a Monday afternoon, something inside me said, you need to tell Mrs. Back what just happened. The night before, I had been at a party in Harvard Square. I gave myself to Jesus. I didn't have the courage to tell anybody, but I knew I was supposed to go tell Mrs. Back. It was a lovely spring afternoon in May, and Mrs. Back was hanging out in her laundry to dry. Old looked even older. I walked up to the fence. Mrs. Back, do you know what it means to be born again? She dropped the clothing that she had, looked in sheer surprise and delight. Why, yes, I do. I don't guess I ever told you I was a pastor's wife before my husband went home to be with the Lord. Well, last night I was born again. She looked at me and she said in a firm voice, You stay right there. I stood in her driveway at the fence, watching her hobble up to the back door, up the steps with her cane. Ten, min ten minutes later, she came out the back door, walked over to me, and handed me the biggest, most awesome-looking piece of chocolate cake I'd ever seen in my life. And it was delicious. When she said, eat it, I did. I devoured that piece of chocolate cake as she stood there and gazed at me, celebrating with me, rejoicing with me. And then she spoke. For the past 15 years since you moved in, I prayed every day for you and your friend Paul. I prayed every day that you would come to know Jesus. Paul came three weeks ago to tell me he had. God changes things through prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's an adventure. It's an adventure to come into your presence, to have a private audience, to bring those that we love and those that we hate, to bring those that seem beyond your power and those who seemed innocent. It, it, it's an adventure to, to bring people into that sphere where your Holy Spirit can work on them. And Father, I know with what I have said in my stumbling and stammering way today, you can use in a much more powerful way. Oh, Father, we need you. We need your love, and we need your faith, and we need your power, and we need your grace, and we need your forgiveness, and we need those who need you to hear from our lips the wonderful things that you've done for us. So, Father, for those who don't know you, we pray for them today. May you use us in a powerful way to impact their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.